In our Sunday night study, we are worked through our uh, our way through books verse by verse with a full exposition of introduction. Then on Sunday morning, we take a concentrated area and hit it more in depth. And so we are uh, in uh, Hosea chapter six. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Hosea chapter six, please? Hosea chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 4 because that's the proper division. The chapter division, again, sometimes can be corrected, a better division. The uh, chapter and verse are not inspired by God. They're just very good attempts of men to try to divide it with uh, topics and sections so that we can easily facilitate the finding of those texts. But uh, sometimes they can be um, adjusted a little. This is one of them. So we will begin in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, and we'll move all the way down to all of chapter 7 tonight, Lord willing. The prophet Hosea has just um, declared the restoration, reconciliation of the nation of Israel in the future, beginning the middle of the tribulation period, that would mark off that uh, point The words of Jesus said that when you see the abomination, the desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, flee to the wilderness. That's when Israel will realize the reception of the Antichrist and will call upon the Lord. She will flee to the wilderness and God will protect her. Isaiah 16.1, Revelation 12.6 tells us that as we saw this morning. And he will prepare and begin to deal with their hearts and the remnant of Israel will be protected by him. And of course, as he comes back and sets up the um, kingdom after destroying the armies that, at, the arm, at the battle of, uh, battle of Armageddon. And then he judges the nations in Matthew 25, those who uh, mistreated the Jew. And then um, he will set up the kingdom and Israel will obtain all his promises, as we saw this morning. Now, Hosea has stated this aspect of the future restoration of Israel three times already. In chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, chapter 2, verse 14 through 23, and chapter 3, verse 4 through 5. Again, the marriage of Hosea to Gomer and the marriage of God to Israel is a parallel straight across in this entire book. And it's very evident as it goes through it. Now Hosea records another section of indictments God brings against Israel. Uh, The northern kingdom, remember, was was established by Jeroboam as God had, uh, uh, by the hand of Ahijah, told him to take ten parts of the kingdom that he was going to give to him, and he's going to leave two to David, Judah, and Benjamin. And um, as the kingdom divided through the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam did not remain faithful to God. Now, he said he was going to make his kingdom with the ten tribes as the kingdom of David. We have been robbed by him by not trusting God how he would do it. We have to record events how it turned out because he did not remain faithful to God. So there you see also that God didn't force Jeroboam the first to trust and believe in him, but he gave him a choice. And yet the wrong choice of Jeroboam the first did not alter the ultimate purposes of God. So when you're looking at the ultimate purpose of God, and you're looking at predestination and free will, they don't contradict each other. But if you believe that man has no free will at all, then you have to declare that God predestined the disobedience of Jeroboam the first, 
And then if God turns around and judges Jeroboam the first for the evil he did, really God would be at fault for it and unjust because he would have decreed that and forced him to do it, right? So you've got one of two ways to go. Either God's ultimate purpose cannot be thwarted and he can declare them before they happen so when they happen you know he's gone. And those decrees and provinces will come to pass and yet there are the actors, if you will, the human instruments that have the freedom of choice but none of that will ever alter it. But that's a freedom of choice to do evil or to obey. And that's what I believe the Bible teaches. So I do believe in predestination. I do believe in free will. But I don't believe in predestination at the exclusion of free will. That is unbiblical. And it would make God very unjust, unholy, unkind, unloving. And very, very limited. Because it would declare that the only way God can assure that what he predicted would come to pass if he controls all things. So he would be less powerful than the Bible says. My Bible says he's so powerful that what he decrees, the ultimate purposes, will come and human instruments and human will can never thwart it. And every person that goes against his will is personally responsible for the evil that they do. But it won't affect the ultimate plan of God. Now, I can buy a God like that because nothing can thwart him. I believe that's the God that the Bible teaches, not one that controls everything and doesn't allow man to have a free will. That's a limited God. I don't know if you watch Transformers where the Hulk slaps around Milky's that puny God. That's a great line. That's a puny God. My Bible says he's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? <laughs> and so, here, Hosea moves on in, um, and he opens up with the conflict of love. That if God's heart, it's broken. Um, here in chapter 6, verse 4 on down to 6, he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. The broken heart of God is anguish at the sinful rebellion of the people, is declared here. O Ephraim, O Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Ephraim here represents Israel, the northern kingdom, as it has before. Hosea eleven eight. he again shows us his heart, the conflict he has. Because he loves Israel, but he's a holy God. They're sinning against him, rebelling against him, and he has to judge them. Now, if you're a parent, you can understand this. You tell your son or your daughter, don't do this. Don't go there. And they go ahead and they disobey. And, and you love them. And you don't want to chasten them. You don't want to discipline them because it breaks your heart. But you know you have to. Or you'll destroy them. You become part of their sin. You become responsible for their sin. Now that's a potential that you and I have and we often fail in that manner. But God does not fail in that manner because he's the epitome of holiness and he cannot look upon sin with any condolence or approval. He has no respect of person, though his love is there. He must discipline, chasten, and judge sin. He's so serious about sin that he poured his wrath out on his son. God killed his son for you and for me. 
because he became literal sin. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him? 2 Corinthians 5.21 The problem with Israel was her momentary and seasonal loyalty. Faithfulness like a morning cloud, like an early dew. You know, you get up and it's kind of foggy and all of a sudden you go brush your teeth, come back, it's gone. Momentary, it's fickle. It's emotional. Yeah, I'll obey you, then next time he rebels. Very short-lived. The simile there, like a morning cloud and early dew, both depict briefness, occasional obedience, faithfulness, um, fickle people. Notice in verse 5 he says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. The only thing God could do was to bring judgment on them. Now he sent the prophets, pronounced judgment on them. The word hewn there means to strike down, calling them out to repentance. And he allowed the judgments to come forth when they didn't repent. And he was judging the northern kingdom constantly. There was havoc, there was drought, there was famine, there was... Those, they were being wiped out by the sword. There was assassinations and murders. Everything else going on. They sown to the wind. They were reaping the whirlwind. He poured out judgment. I have slain thee by the words of their mouth, of my mouth. Judgment. And notice the judgments were clearly understood and certain. Like light that goes forth. In other words... The prophets faithfully proclaim. And sometimes we lose the fact of how scary those situations were. In a very hostile territory of the north, false prophets worship of Baal. Ahab, Jezebel, has many of the uh, prophetess of Baal. Elijah met them at Mount Carmel. And where you stand as one alone declaring... Truth to people who know only darkness and delight in darkness. And they're not going to sit smiling at you. They're not going to sit there and tolerate what you're saying. So many of the prophets were slain by them. They were murdered. And so here again, incredible brave men. Their words were very clear, very direct. They didn't cower. They were understood so that when God brought judgment to the northern kingdom, to the certain king or the people, they had no excuse. You as a parent, once again, their parallel is there. You tell your son or daughter, listen to me, look at me. Do not go over Johnny's house. I'm going to leave for a couple hours. And you know if he goes to Johnny's house, (laughs) he's without excuse, right? Because you told him very clear, he understood. This is the same with Israel here. Look at verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So here in verse 6, the response God was looking for was repentance. God wanted faithfulness, not phoniness. 
He desired mercy, not sacrifice. He wanted to be benevolent. He wanted to be forgiving. He, he, he isn't pleased with sacrifices. Sometimes people, well, they do their thing. And they, well, you know, then I'll, I, I just, I, I'll, I'll give up a, a meal for today. And substitute to obedience. Like if we're going to, you know, bargain with God. Or, or, or rather than driving my car to church the four blocks, I'll walk to church to show them how much I love them. Really? But men deceive themselves. And when men and women become religious, that's the way they get through things. As if they can sacrifice things as a substitute for obedience. God says, no. Not at all. The word mercy, hesed, again is a covenant word, steadfast love. God wanted to bless them with a steadfast love, but could not do to their sin. You as a parent, once again, you want to bless your child. You want to bless your son, your daughter. You want to give them the best. You want them to see them enjoy life. But because of their conduct, because of their choices, you dare not. Lest they interpret your blessing as an approval of their lifestyle. And if you do, then God will hold you responsible for part of their destruction. And sometimes Christian parents compromise too much with their children. If you do, it'll come back to bite you. Guaranteed. God wanted them to um, live truth out. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. Psalm 66, 18 says, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God's hands not short that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot uh, save, uh, but your sins have separated you from God. And he turns his back on us. So when we fall short, we ask him for forgiveness. We acknowledge our sin. We ask confession. We ask forgiveness. And he cleanses us. And we're in fellowship with God. But to think that God will tolerate sin in my life and I still can talk with him is ludicrous. It's like in your cell phone. You're on the line and you go down and you get through a, you drive through a hole and you drop. You drop that guy like a bad habit. That's the same thing with God. Sin is a hindrance to God. And so he always wants that acknowledgement, that confession. He wants them to live out truth rather than to be religious. He doesn't care about burnt offerings, sacrifices. If you read Isaiah, the opening chapters, boy, he really gets on that. He says, you know, you offer these, uh, these, these blemished sacrifices to God. Why don't you offer them to your governor? See if they like it. <laughs> you know? You're going to give something to God to give him the hand-me-downs, right? We're supposed to give God our best. Not what we can't use. The word knowledge means understanding, discretion, verified by wisdom. It's the application to life. He's used it in chapter 4, verse 1 and 6. Ceremony and ritual at the expense of truth is smoke in the nostrils of God. 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of ram for his rebellion. His rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. Wow, those are strong words. And he's, the context is Saul when he didn't obey God to kill all the Amalekites. And he tried to blame the people rather than take personal responsibility. You cannot blame anybody for your sin. When you come to God, you say, Lord, I sinned against you. That's what he wants to hear. 
He doesn't want to hear lame excuses. They want to hear that, well, you know, you know, if she wouldn't have done this, or well, he doesn't hear it. I must be genuine when I come to him. In 7 through 9, we have the continual evil presented by God against the people. Um, he says, but like men, they transgress the covenant. The word there for men is Adam. He's like Adam in the garden. He had a choice. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you won't be blessed. It's the covenant that he had with Israel. There, they dwelt treacherously with me. Notice that. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for man, so the company of the priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. The sin of Israel was primarily the sin against God. David makes this clear in Psalm 51 that sin is always first against God, the vertical axis that we talk about all the time. Then the horizontal plane. My sin is always first against God. Then against man. When God confronted David through Nathan, you know, David says against you and only you have I sinned when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and when he killed Uriah. Now, first it was against God. Then on the horizontal level, it was against Bathsheba, against her husband, and then against her husband by killing him. But first is vertical. That's always the most important. So we sin against God, then we sin against men or women or with men and with women, okay? But we have the full responsibility of our choices. We can't say, well, I was coerced, I was pressured. I, you know, unless they hold you at gunpoint, that's different. Unless they force you to do it. But if you go along with it, you are fully responsible and so am I. And we live in a society today where it's all, you know, everybody's entitled. Everybody can blame everybody. Nobody's at fault. And so there are no consequences. All manner of authority is destroyed in our society today. And our society, ladies and gentlemen, is going to come to a screeching halt very, very soon. Because nobody can say anything. Nobody can judge anything. Nobody can fire anyone. It'll come to a screeching halt. Our society will disintegrate. It cannot continue. All because of sin. Sin kills. The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23. Absolutely. They did what they knew to be wrong. Like Adam. The word but marks a sharp contrast of the previous verse. God's desire to be merciful. To live by his word, but they disobeyed. Like Adam, they trample on the covenant made with God. A willful crossing over violating transgression. There's a difference between transgressing and sinning. Sinning is because we are sinners, we're weak, we're frail, we're, we miss the mark. A transgression is it says, don't do that. You know not to do it and you still cross over. You come to a property, it says private property, no trespassing. 
You climb over the fence. That's a transgression. You're going home. It's a red light. You know you can't run. You run. That's a transgression. <laughs> That's what the word means. It's different. The word covenant, again, it means agreement, alliance, also a treaty. The various conditions that are given in Genesis 3 and Exodus 24, Hosea 2, 18, 8, 1, many different places. The covenant of Moses. They became disgraceful, disloyal. Notice, there they deal treacherously with me. So their actions, their lives, their disobedience, their transgressions was directly against God. Because God was their spiritual father to the nation. The word treacherously, treacherously means the act of doing dishonorable and shameful things deceitfully and unfaithfully against God, who was her husband. When you use the word treacherous or treachery, it is used in the context that someone who you have allowed to come close to you, someone that you've trusted, someone that you love, be it a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, a cousin, a real good friend that you would trust with everything, and they betray you. That's treachery because you didn't expect it, and when you find out, it just tears your heart. That's the context of the word treachery. Verse 8 and 9, the sin of Israel were not isolated occasions. Notice what he says. Gilead is the city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of, of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. And so God points out the city here in the east side of the Jordan River below the city, the Sea of Galilee, and the area of Moab, where half of the tribe of Manasseh settled. Remember on the other side, you had half the tribe of Manasseh, uh, you had uh, the other two um, that were settled there. And you have it also in Joshua 17, 5. And God pointed out they, they were wicked murders. Notice that. Gilead, a city of evildoers. They defiled with blood. So violence. Um, you have uh, Pekaliah by, was murdered by Pekah and 50 men in Gileadites. And you go through the history of the northern kingdom as recorded in 2 Kings 15.25 and other passages, it was just one thing after another. There was just uh, uh, bloodshed. There was just, uh, as we're going to see here, uh, uh, robbing and, and murdering and everything else. And there was no consequences. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, as we have in the book of Judges. Um, God pointed out they were priests in verse 9, notice. They acted like roaming thugs. As bands of robbers lying wait for a man. And these guys are supposed to be priests. They kill the people on their journey to the city. The company of the priests is Shechem. Now, Shechem, as you know, is a modern day Anabulus. Some of you went with us to Israel. Um, on Mount Ephraim, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans. Now, we never go there because it, there's always violence around there, so we haven't gone there in years. But uh, that was the two mountains of blessing and cursing, by the way. And that's where Jesus went to the woman at the well in Shechem, okay, right there. And uh, these priests were probably not of the line of Levi, because remember the Jeroboam ascribed men of the common 
uh, tribes to be priests because when he made a decision to set up the calf worship in Dan and in Bethel, then he chose people of the ordinary people because the real priests of Levi, when they saw that, they went back to David. So these individuals have no real commitment to the Levitical order, most likely, and they're just uh, evil like anybody else, yet they're representing those who serve God and those who are mediators towards God in the service of God. What a, what a greater charge against them. Um, they actually lead the example of evil here. And the priest again, the area of Shechem, again, you go to John uh, 4.24 with the woman of Samaria and back to Genesis 34 also. Now, they live shamefully. Surely they commit lewdness. It means unchaste, licentiousness. So here you have, um, and this happens, and if you think that, that this doesn't happen often in, in, in church in different times, you're, you're mistaken. Often I, um, I finish the sermon and I always come up in front afterwards and I talk to people and pray for them or answer questions, whatever it is. And, and at times people walk up and I say, oh, how are you doing? I've never seen them before or haven't met them yet. They come to church and I go, oh, how are you doing? You're Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great, great, great. And, and as we're talking different things, they just voluntarily start saying, yeah, you know, um, you guys do marriages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We go take you to marriage council and all that. And, and in the conversation, they say, yeah, because me and my girlfriend, you know, we're living together and we want to get married. And there's such a, an incompatible integrity in the church today that people can be in the church and declare that they're Christians and they're living like pagans. And they're living in sin. What Bible are you reading? How long have you been a Christian? <laughs> What's going on here? And they're not trying to hide it. They, they say it in conversation. And I said, wait, 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 wait. You're a Christian? And then I, you're all mine. I'm going to give you the word of God. I can't be. Either you're back in the world, backslidden, or you've never been born again. Which is it? You tell me. One of the two. The plumb line is the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says, do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. We're supposed to be salt and light to the world. And if there's nothing different between me and people in the world, then something is definitely wrong. And that's the problem today in the church. The church is very, very, very worldly. Now in verse 10 and 11, the sins of God's people demanded a verdict. He says, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is a harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. And so first God addressed Israel to be judged. The horrible things that he saw in the house of Israel. Harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Their unfaithfulness to God spiritually led them to physical adultery with the worship of the cults of that time, as we've seen very, very clearly. So one leads to another. And remember, idols and fornication always go together. Just like peanut butter and jam. 
And you can never get away from that. Paul the Apostle makes this very clear when he's talking to the Corinthians. And here again, God saw everything. Nothing escaped him. The spiritual unfaithfulness to God was an idolatry leading them to apostasy. And notice, secondly, God addressed Judah about her coming judgment also. Because right now the northern kingdom is going to go in 722 to Assyria. 114 years later, the first siege will come to Judah through the hand of Babylon. And so he says, also, Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. The harvest is that captivity that they're going to go into. God gave them 114 years. That's a long time. Now, it's interesting that if you remember, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, I gave you a sermon for the 4th of July on the history of our nation and the plans by men in the United States beginning the beginnings of 1900, their attempts and their plan to remove every vestige of Christianity from every public square. If you take that date, it's 2015. It would be 111 years or so. God, God gave to America about the same time as he gave to Judah with the example of judgment to the northern kingdom Israel. And I personally believe that we crossed the line. That judgment is coming to America very, very soon. Now, through the, all that time, judgment was hitting the northern kingdom. During all that time, judgment was already hitting the, the southern kingdom. But the ultimate captivity, the destruction of the nation, came 114 years later. I believe God has been judging us. But the destruction of the nation is yet to come. And I believe that you and I are like Jeremiah, that God has called us to watch the death of our nation. As much as Hosea was called to watch the death of the northern kingdom. And it's very grievous because what an incredible nation the United States. Short of a spiritual revival in God's mercy... It's like trying to turn around a, a carrier in the last minute from hitting the dock. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Or an airplane at the last minute to pull up or make a turn. It's just not going to happen. And so judgment on both the northern and the southern kingdom. When you come to chapter 7, verse 1 through 16, we have the arrogance of Israel towards Yahweh. In the first seven verses, we have the destructive effects of sin on the nation. Notice verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria, and they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. And so here, the exposure of the sinful pride of Israel by God 
in the first three verses. This is a continuation of chapter 6. Verse 1 should go with chapter 6. God's desire was to heal Israel. Listen to this word, when I would have healed Israel. Now, if God says here that he wanted to heal Israel, but he tells us he could not because he didn't repent, you've got one of two choices again. Either God is playing a fast one on us and he really didn't want to do it because he decreed he wasn't going to do it, or he's telling the truth that he really wanted to do it, but he was limited because of the disobedience. Which one is it? <laughs> As I read the text, it means that God could have really healed them. But it would have been repentance. But because they didn't repent, then God had to bring judgment. So God's not responsible for their judgment once again. God is revealing that he did not decree the evil. But the free will of man is ever present, bringing personal responsibility and accountability to God. God did all he could. You remember um, the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5? I hedged it around. I fertilized it. I watered it. I was expecting a good crop of grapes. And whoa, wild grapes. And he says, what else could I have done? Now in that statement, God is saying, you are responsible for what you turn out to be. I did everything. I gave you my word. I gave you my promise. I gave you my blessings. I gave you my spirit. I gave you the priest. I gave you the law. I gave you the land. I gave you the blessing. And you squandered it. All throughout the Old Testament, God charges, God accuses, God indicts, God condemns because they were disobedient and responsible for their actions. God didn't do it. When God says these things, does that mean that, he, that man limits him? To an extent, yes. He limits him because of his sin. The psalm says that they limited God in the wilderness. He wanted to do so much more. The trip was only 11 days. It took him 40 years. That's a heck of a unshortcut. <laughs> Because God doesn't force anybody. Israel chose to sin and apostatize. God only witnessed greater wickedness. The iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. The wickedness of Samaria. Ephraim again is used as the head of the nation of the Northern Kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the Northern Kingdom. King Omri, later on Ahab and Jezebel. It's a beautiful location. You can see... From the Mediterranean over to the other end, it's beautiful. Israel called their sin out, or God calls their sin out. He says, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers, takes spoil outside. Fraud, deception, falsehood. Today in society, you don't know when someone's telling you the truth. Because we're living in an amoral society. Subjective. Existential philosophy. Good is evil. Evil is good. It's all subjective. So society can't agree. 
So therefore, we have even given a new vocabulary. Well, he didn't lie. He misspoke. What an insult it is to our intellect. What an insult. In the highest office of the land. When everybody knows you're Pinocchio. And men think they're so clever. Because they have power to corrupt. And to control and to break people. Theft by individuals. Gangs of robbers. They roam looting. Taking whatever they want. Stripping everything they want. Society starts breaking down ladies and gentlemen. Take these things and mark the parallel to our nation, to our society, to our state here. Home invasions, robberies, identity fraud. I'm sure you didn't leave your car unlocked in the parking lot. (laughs) I'm sure you lock your door at night. Put your alarm and get out your shotgun. Is it because we got a lot of nice people? (laughs) I don't think so. When you get rid of morality and ethics, nothing works. Everything falls apart. Nobody can be trusted. That's how society is decaying in our nation right now. At lightning speed. I never thought in my mind that I would see this type of decay in America before the Lord took us home. When I got saved in 73. I couldn't have imagined it. That we would get to a point where we are. Where our politicians could just outright lie. If you want to keep your health plan, your doctors, you can Well, that's why we have to pass it so we can find out what's in it. The new saying now, brown is free to let your lawns go brown. It's all indoctrination, ladies and gentlemen. Whacking ducks. But you know, ducks are are messy and they're stinky. Do you see it happening? There's a great parallel. God never changes, he's holy. Man never changes, he's sinful. When you remove those pillars of truth and authority and power and accountability and responsibility, the roof comes down. The walls cave in. There's nothing to support them at all. In verse 2 and 3, their hearts and minds are darkened. The people do not have God in view of their sin. They don't consider in their heart that he remembers all their wickedness. Men try to hide. But today, you have a cell phone. You are tracked everywhere you go. Big Brother knows where you've been, where you're going, and where you live. 
The only safe phone is the one you can take your battery out. The iPhone is great, but it's the worst phone. They can turn it on and turn it off anytime they want. So you have great danger. All the technology. It's good on one hand, but it's terrible on the other hand. <laughs> but as we move forward in the program of God and the schedule, we see it all gelling together. We see everything being set up for the Antichrist. We see the one world mindset. We see the agreement of the masses as followers, non-thinking people. You saw the same thing in Hitler's Germany. Therefore, you can justify anything because you're the elite. Obama said, we are the ones we have been waiting for. Wow. Pretty heavy. What a great parallel. They don't, rem they don't remember that I see all the wickedness. The people devoted are devoted and driven to their evil continuously. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. You see, if you're a liar and if you're a committed sinner, you've got to remember all these lies to be able to cover yourself. But as you move through a non-truth or amoral society, after a while, you don't have to remember because no one can judge you. And you can make up the excuse on the spot. If you don't think that's going on in our society, next time call Verizon. They're the worst customer service in the world. And ask them a question about your problem, whatever. They will make up an answer. And that's anybody. But I'm just choosing Verizon because they're probably the worst. <laughs> People on the other end will just make up an answer that is not real. They don't know, they don't care. They just make it up. Because nobody's accountable. To get fired, you probably have to fire yourself. <laughs> and they still probably wouldn't re receive your, your letter of resignation. It's amazing. All their lies, all their sins surrounds them. Their sins are seen by God. They're before my face. The king promotes evil and entertains by others, by the evil of people. They make um, the king glad with their wickedness, it says, verse 3, and princes with their lies. So corruption is promoted by those who are leaders, the kings. And they're one with evil people. Verse 3 there. And so when you have those people who are leading, who are corrupt, they're evil. And they are entertained and encouraged greater evil and promote evil. Look at our nation. You see the parallel. Sharpton. 
one of the greatest frauds and evil people of the world. He owes millions of dollars to income tax. The only reason they don't throw him in jail is because he's black. Evil. And all he does is he incites trouble anywhere he goes. It's amazing. Has nothing to do that he's black, but that's the pressure today. So people cower, people bend to accomplish evil. Wow, what a parallel. Look at four through seven. Their passion for sex and murder is overwhelming. He says, they are all adulterers like an oven heated by the baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneeling the dough until it is leavened. The aspect here in verse 4 is that uh, the baker, you know, and, and he makes a parallel with people's, uh, they're, like, they're like ovens, they're, 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 they're in heat, they're, 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 they're sexual passions for not only sexual, but for the evil. And like a baker, he heats that oven all day long and it's hot and everything. And, and, and then he kneads the dough at night and he waits for it to rise. And, and he can turn it down and because that he will carry over at night. And so they are, the only time that they're really kind of just waiting to do evil more is just a little time in the night that they're just waiting. They can't wait to get at it again. You look to our society, you look at the entertainment, you look at, at cable TV, you look at uh, HBO, whatever it is. You got to watch out. It is bad stuff. And then we wonder why all the evil that goes on sexually in the United States with child molestation and unfaithfulness and venereal disease and AIDS and everything else. We've sown to the wind. We've reaped the whirlwind. And yet we... Compliment ourselves. Well, I feel comfortable in my skin. Well, you may, but I don't feel comfortable looking at your skin. (laughs) Crazy philosophies. Insane. Notice in 5, in the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine, and stretched out his hand with scoffers. And so here again, the wicked young leaders encourage and help corrupt the king. Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. The destruction of alcohol, the corruption that comes by that. I was in the world for 23 years. I drank heavily. There wasn't a day or a weekend I didn't drink. All the things that took place, the trouble and everything else that came from that. Destructive. And yet here again, these are the... um, the leaders. You know the highest consumption of alcohol is Washington, D.C., right? The politicians. We're on the Internet. 
I think Nancy Pelosi probably top no top one. But it's amazing to me. No wonder they can't make simple decisions. They're so drunk and their brains are so wiped out. Amazing. They're yes-men, opportunists, clouding the mind and the heart of the king at his birthday, his coronation, the festive days. They're not his friends. They're there, they're there for the convenience, for the advantage, for the thrill of corrupting others. The outcome is the king keeps company with evil men. Look at verse 6. They prepare their hearts like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night in the morning. It burns like a flaming fire. So once again, as I said, you know, they're at it all day and every way, whether it's evil or sexual. And um, the little time that they go home to rest or they're waiting, they just can't wait to get back at it. It's, it's, it's a, a way of life. Um, but it's a very destructive life. It, it destroys everything within you. Sin seems to be fun at first. But after a while, it becomes very, very destructive and very costly. Verse 7 says, They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them call upon me. So they just destroy one another. They murder, assassinate. Uh, everything here in verse 7 points to all the atrocities there in Second Kings chapter 15. You read through there. That's one good chapter to read. And you see what goes on. The kings were evil. All the kings of the northern kingdom were all evil. Not one good one. The southern kingdom had good and evil ones. The northern kingdom, not one good one. All evil. Now from 8 down to 16, you have the destructive end of trusting in the other nations. So the first half, we've seen the destruction from within sin. Now the destructions come from trusting outside the arm of flesh. Egypt, Assyria, and not God. 8 through 11, the sad, weak, the sad, weak condition of Israel is given here. 8 through 11. He says, Ephraim has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Now, what is meant here is that Ephraim is unequally yoked. She's mixed herself among the nations of Syria, Egypt, Syria, the Philistines. And Ephraim became weak. She's a cake unturned. There's various ways to see it. Some interpret this to mean a pancake unturned, half done. It's burnt on the bottom and kind of raw on the top. If you've ever made pancakes, you know, you take a bite, you, you spit it out. It's uneatable, it's worthless. Others interpret this to mean Ephraim was like a thin pancake having no strength or consistency, so you can't turn it over. Either way, it demonstrates the unpalatableness of it and the weakness of the nation. It destroys it, decays it. Both would clearly illustrate the understanding of the mixed marriages by the foreign alliances they made that destroyed and weakened them in their relationship to God. 
And there is nothing that will destroy you. And if you're single, you're not married, pay attention. Do not be unequally yoked with a number. Do not marry. First of all, let me back up. Do not date ever a non-believer if you're a Christian. Because once you get emotionally involved, you're going to move into other areas. And no one ever married anybody they didn't date at least one time. It's real simple. (laughs) You make sure you're not unequally yoked because the person that you marry will be the second most important decision in your entire life. That person, husband or wife, will affect you for the rest of your life. They're going to be the father, the mother of your children. And they're going to be either a helpmate for you or a dragmate. One of the two. And so you make sure that you make sure that God directs you to the person you're going to marry. You get impatient, you pay a big price. When you say, I do, you can't say, I won't. There are no returns. The only basis for divorce is adultery. The only basis. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, if you're married to a non-believer, and we don't know whether they were married because they disobeyed or they married and then they came to know the Lord after the fact, he says, do not leave your non-believing spouse or husband. You remain faithful. You pray for them. But if the non-believer moves to divorce you because you're Christian, then you're set free. But when two believers get married, only adultery is the grounds for divorce. If you're unequally yoked one way or the other, the non-believer has to initiate the divorce, not the believer. A believer can only initiate divorce on the grounds of adultery. Very, very clear, 1 Corinthians 7. And in spite of that, Christians get married, divorced, and remarried for every stinking reason today in the church. And they think they're right with God. Are you kidding me? Slape agape. It's an abuse of God's love. It may fly down here, but doesn't fly in heaven. Trust me. And so... Verse 9 says, aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here, there on him, yet he does not know it. So all these admixtures, all these alliances, all these unequally yoked, all you, you, you put the list down, it weakens, it takes you away from God. And, and as he says here, he says, you know, he's got gray hairs, and, and yet, you know, he, he thinks he's still young. I can still do that. He doesn't even know his weakness. Self-deception. How often you see, I think of people in Vegas. Vegas to me is nothing but a high school campus. Of people that never grew up. They're still in high school. And you have gray hair and you're acting like an idiot. Like if you're 18. And because you've got money, you've got this beautiful babe. Well, she's not there because you're a handsome. She's there because you're your sugar daddy. Who's the fool? Amazing. Make the gray hair count for wisdom. <laughs> not stupidity. That's what Hosea is saying here. 
10 says, And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. So here's the indictment in verse 10. In spite of what all that God was doing, the application here is the ongoing rebellion. Their pride testifies to their face. Rather than turning to God, they refuse to repent. So therefore, they're accountable. They don't seek Him at all. In their idolatrous practices, though they say they're worshiping God, God can't honor that because it's contrary to the Word of God. In verse 11, He says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove, without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria, and not... If you know about birds, when we were little, I mean, we, we used to shoot birds with BB guns and slingshots, stuff like that, you know? Today, people, oh, that's why God has a lot of birds. <laughs> that's why God makes a lot of fish, and it's all the, the chain, okay? Um, today, earth people and whale people and everything else, it's just, you know, they have a cardiac arrest. Um, but doves are some of the dumbest birds, right? Because... You, you, you go up there, you walk up with them with a BB gun, a rock or anything. They just sit there. This is, this is Ephraim. This is Israel. Silly dove, why? Because they're going to Assyria. They're going to Egypt. What did Netanyahu tell us? The enemy of your friends is not your friend. <laughs> Assyria is going to take him captive. Egypt, as Isaiah said, is like a broken reed if you lean on it. Don't trust in the arm of flesh. They weren't leaning on God anymore. Verse 12 says, Whenever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like a bird of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. So to verse 12, down to 16, you have the judgment that God will bring upon them. Now God puts himself as a hunter. Before we saw that the leaders were the snarers of the people. Now God becomes a hunter to they, the prey. God is going to, um, judge them in, in verse 12 there. And in 13 he says, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. So, they have fled away from them. They have um, transgressed against God. And he had redeemed them. And they've spoken lies against him. The false prophets were saying, no, no, no. God's not going to judge us. No, we're good. We're, you know, a bunch of lies. You know, today people, people that are telling the truth, can, we, 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 we're over our head in debt. And you have the liars who say, oh, no, no, we're okay. We can balance it out. You can't, we can't even pay the interest on our loan. Are you kidding me? Greece just went bankrupt. Portugal is next. Then Spain follows. Then France. And the Germans are tired of flipping the bill. And the Germans are decreasing in a greater number than any of the European nations. 
And if God tarries, there will be no more Germans pretty soon. They can't keep producing. And yet the world is like, we're in the greatest days of the mankind. Really? Wow. Amazing. Woe to them. That's judgment. Woe to them. Verse 14, he says, They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebelled against me. So in other words, when they saw the judgments coming, the calamities, they're crying on their bed, but not to God. And then they did, it was just because of the pain. It wasn't because they were sincere. And they assembled simply to go out and to collect the little that they could collect rather than repenting and say, Lord, we forgive us, you know. Forgive us of our sin. We've done wrong. No, they didn't. They just went out and tried to make do with the scarcity of food that God had produced. The rebelliousness, the refuse to repent. And there's some people that you will minister the gospel to. They will refuse to repent. They are so committed to sin. They are so committed to the destruction of their life that they, they will become outraged that you even insinuate. I don't want to hear the gospel. Don't tell me nothing. You ever been somebody like that? Pretty heavy. Verse 15. Though I discipline and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Now either God is telling the truth or he's lying. (laughs) Either God is good or man is good. Which one is it? (laughs) God's good for everything. Man is good for nothing. That's what my Bible tells me. 16. They return, but not to the most high. They are like a treacherous bow. The princes shall fall by the sword and the cursing of their tongue. For the cursing of their tongue, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And so, the, um, the treacherous bow speaks of a bow that is, um, it's crooked. You, 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 you pull it and you shoot it and it deviates. It doesn't aim straight. This is Israel. They're fickle. They're evil. They continue to insult God through their centers of worship in Bethel and in Dan. So the summary statement there in verse 16, Israel turned everyone to everyone but God. And that's man. They, man will do anything he can. He'll resort to everything to try to solve his problems or evil. Or to present himself as a good person. Except turning to God. Because if you turn to God, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner headed for hell. And you deserve judgment. People today don't want to do that. Their hearts are hard. Society permits evil. In fact, society today rewards evil. The fulfillment of Isaiah. They call good evil, evil good. Isaiah 5.20 Those in authority would, for their arrogant, rebellious words, be punished. The sword. They would be laughed at by Egypt. 
Isaiah 36, 6 says, Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed. Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into your hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Assyria, Egypt. Both enemies. We as a nation have made our enemies our friends. We're making deals with Iran. We've opened negotiations with Cuba. And we have made our our friends or we have made ourselves enemies of our friends. Israel. The European nations that were protected by the missiles back six and a half years ago when they were taken down on the anniversary and made them vulnerable to Russia that walked in. The few friends you have, why would you want to make them your enemies? And why would you make your enemies your friends? When they would kill you in a second. But that's what sin does. That's what corruption does. It makes you nonsensical, non-logical. It makes you a destructive, evil person. And you don't even know it. Wow. Wow. Quite an indictment. This is God's word. This is not folktale or anything else. This is an actual nation, an actual time, an actual judgment. And it's written for our learning, for our example, that we don't come to the same place. You got to give us wisdom. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, and your grace, Lord. And Father, we pray you deal with our hearts. And Lord, as we look to our nation, we pray for our nation. We pray for your mercy. Help us to warn, to stand firm, and to allow you to do the work in us and through us, Lord. We pray tonight, Lord, for anybody that's here who doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts. If they don't know you, that they would call on your name, Lord, that you might save them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you see yourself as a sinner, that's the grace of God. If you believe that Jesus died in your place and paid for your sins, that's the grace of God. But you are the only one that can repent and ask God to forgive you. He doesn't do that for you. Maybe you're over the internet. The same goes to you. If you see yourself in what I just stated, then you can call upon him. And by grace through faith, he will save you right now. So this is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord.
Amen.